Acts 14, verses 1 through 18. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down on us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heaven from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrain people the people from offering sacrifice to them. Alright, good morning. So, my name is Eric Burnley, and I've served here at Genesis um, as a worship pastor for about 10 years or so, um, as elder for about 7 years, and it's my honor to be up here today to take swing number 3 at preaching, but I'm going to ask that you please don't call me out on strikes, because that would be all too reminiscent of my Little League days. And that right there is about as close to a sports reference as you're going to get from me. Because I am totally more of a band nerd, okay? All right, so now in our study of Acts, we have entered what many consider to be the second part of the book. As Mike explained a couple weeks ago in his sermon, there's this kind of natural division between Acts 1 through 12 and Acts 13 through 28. And we see the focus shift from the church in Jerusalem, which was comfortable with its largely Jewish audience, to a more globally-minded church in Antioch in Syria. And that is the, the church who sends out Paul and Barnabas 
on these extensive missionary journeys that we're starting to read about in Acts. And also there is this shift from Peter being the main evangelistic voice speaking largely to the Jewish population to Paul who is the evangelist to the Gentile or non-Jewish audience. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, as Kirk preached through uh, Acts 13, Matt, Paul masterfully preaches through the gospel, straight through essentially what's the arc of the entire Bible, right? He starts leading up 400 years into the Jews wandering in the wilderness for another 40 years through God giving them the land of Canaan after defeating the seven nations into the judges who were all a mess. The story of King Saul, who was also a mess. The reign of King David, who was also a mess, though a mess after God's own heart. Through exile, return, all the way through David's line to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul explained how Jesus fulfilled the promise of God to send a Savior, the Messiah, such that through him they could receive forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from the need to save themselves by fulfilling the law. And it was amazing to have this Jewish audience who already knew all this Old Testament history and had a frame of reference for what God had promised and fulfilled in sending Jesus the Son, right? Jesus fit right into that framework. But how on earth do you approach people who have absolutely none of that? I mean, many of the people that Paul and Barnabas are meeting and encountering in these subsequent chapters and acts, they are for all intents and purposes completely unaware of anything Jewish. They have no knowledge of the Old Testament. They would basically say, what's a Bible? Or, who's Moses? And these are the people, as Mike reminded us a couple weeks ago, that Jesus called believers to seek out in order to share the gospel with them. And that's going to be our focus today as we step into Acts 14. How does Paul's evangelistic approach change to suit an audience with no frame of reference for the Bible? And what implications does that have for us as we seek to follow Jesus in planting seeds of the gospel like we talked about a couple weeks ago when Kirk preached? So, previously in our story of Acts, you'll remember perhaps two weeks ago at the end of Acts 13, we saw Paul and Barnabas run into more opposition uh, from the Jews in Antioch. And they proclaimed that they were then going to be turning to the Gentiles. And it says they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. So that's where we're picking it up in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are on their way to Iconium. And I don't know about you, but I tend to get confused with all these different cities and what's a region, what's a city. So I like to look at a map to get my head around things. So this is the Crossways ESV Study Bible map of Paul and Barnabas' first journey. So you can see they they go from, uh, if you follow the line, the dark line, they go from Syria to Cyprus up to Perga. 
uh, and they go from Antioch in Syria to Cyprus to Antioch in Pisidia. You can think of Antioch kind of like Springfield, right? There's one in Missouri, there's one in Illinois, you just got to clarify which one you're talking about. Um, there's Antioch in Syria, there's Antioch in Pisidia, they went from Cyprus up to Perga to Pisidia and Antioch in chapter 13 and then down to Iconium now in chapter 14. All these areas that we're talking about in chapter 14, by the way, are part of the Roman Empire in the province of Galatia for 14. If you put it in American terms, you can think of that as, you know, the Roman Empire is kind of like the United States. Galatia would be kind of like a state. Uh, Pisidia and Lycaonia would be like counties. And then Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, those are all towns or cities. So Iconium is the current-day city of Konya, K-O-N-Y-A, in Turkey. It has about one and a half million people today. It's this ancient town. It's about 90 miles southeast of Pisidia and Antioch. The Greeks made it a city-state, and under Augustus, it became a city in the Roman province of Galatia, like we said. So it's in a Roman province, but it has a whole lot of Greek heritage and influence. And Paul and Barnabas follow the pattern that they've set forth earlier in Acts, right? They start preaching in the synagogues. And it says a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed, which is awesome, right? But if you look down at verse 2, it says the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they're preaching, people start believing, And they receive opposition from these unbelieving Jews. And what do they do? They stay. A long time. Like on the order of six months. And I have to like examine my own heart here and say, if I was receiving this kind of opposition, what I I don't even know what I would do. I don't know that I would stay. But if you read verse 2 and 3 together, it says they actually stayed because they were receiving opposition. Meaning that in the face of it, they wanted to solidify the validity of the message of salvation from the sovereign God of the universe who triumphs over all worldly opposition. Right? Paul and Barnabas are there, boldly preaching the word of God, and doing signs and wonders by the power of God through the Holy Spirit that confirmed the truth of God. And they stayed, living out what Paul writes some 10 years later in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now if you look at verse 4, It says the people of Iconium were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others sided with the apostles. And we know that that's to be expected. As John Stott reminds us in his commentary, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It unites and it divides. Now, Tony Merida relates this division to how people react to grace. Because essentially the gospel is the message of God's grace, right? He says... Grace tends to either give people an unspeakable sense of relief and joy or produce hostility and anger. 
And that's because the natural tendency of the human heart is to establish our own righteousness in our own strength through our own works, right? Which is entirely counterintuitive to the message of the gospel, which says that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. Salvation only comes from being found in Christ alone, who has lived the singularly perfect life that the one true, holy, and just God requires. Now, I also like how Rebecca McLaughlin approaches this in her book, uh, Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. She says, there's one thing we can all know for sure. Jesus was either physically raised from the dead, or he wasn't. If we took a video camera back 2,000 years, set it up outside the tomb, we'd either see him coming out or not. What we can't say is that Christians, Muslims, and Jews are all right about Jesus. He is either the resurrected king of the universe who defeated sin and death, or he is not. And these are the kind of things that I think are running through the minds of these unbelieving Jews. They're either not believing Christ rose from the dead, or they're finding fault with the concept that Paul is presenting of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They're used to establishing their own righteousness through fulfilling the law and through Old Testament sacrifices. And so really briefly, I would, I would maybe propose that we each kind of ask ourselves, where do I fall on these questions? Actually, let's maybe pause on that, and we'll come back to it, I think, a little bit later. So ultimately, if you look down at verse 5, we see the heat got turned up so much for Paul and Barnabas that there was an attempt by the Gentiles and the unbelieving Jews to stone them. Stoning was how ancient Jews executed the death penalty, pardon the pun, for blaspheming against God. So that's essentially what these Jews are saying. They're clearly upset. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God the resurrected king of the universe. They did not embrace the gospel of grace, and therefore they felt that Paul and Barnabas was blasph- were blaspheming God. But thankfully, Paul and Barnabas, they hear about that, and they left Iconium. Now, there's not really a whole lot more detail here in terms of their time in Iconium or how they were preaching specifically. Most of the time... In Luke's writing of Acts, when there's not a lot of detail given with regards to what Paul and Barnabas are teaching, you can kind of assume that as they're moving from town to town, what they're sharing is often quite similar to how they presented it earlier in Acts. Luke will note when things change. And as we'll, we'll see that as we get to Lystra. Um, so you can probably infer that Whatever they're presenting here in terms of the gospel in the synagogue in Iconium is probably pretty similar to what they preached earlier, maybe in Acts 13. So, moving on. Paul and Barnabas leave Iconium, and they head about 20 miles southwest to the town of Lystra. Now, Lystra was similar to Iconium. It was made a Roman colony in Galatia, though it still had a lot of Greek roots. But Lystra was quite a bit smaller than Iconium. I read comparisons of you know, kind of Iconium being a really large city 
and Lister being more like a backwater town or the Wild West. And Lister was populated mainly by Gentiles, though there were Jews who lived there. In fact, Timothy, who we see later in the New Testament, Timothy lived there with his mother and his grandmother. And ultimately, he believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But since Lystra was smaller and the Jewish population was really sparse, it appears that there was perhaps no synagogue because we don't have a report of Paul and Barnabas stopping there. We do see in 13, verse 13, that there was a temple to Zeus at the entrance to the town. So we can kind of see where these people's hearts are pointed. Now if we look at verse 8, we see Luke is clear to point out that there is a lame man. In fact, Luke says it three ways, just to emphasize it. He couldn't use his feet, he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. Now, I love how Al Mohler and his team uh, put this in the uh, NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible. He says, the unnamed man had insufficient physical structures to enable locomotion. This guy could only have walked if those structures were provided or created for him. Luke stresses this because it plays up that healing this man could only have been accomplished by God. There was not a way for the best physician to accomplish this in the year 87 AD. It had to be done by God. And we see in verse 9, the man is there and he's listening to Paul speak. And Warren Wiersbe points out that the word translated as speak here usually means ordinary conversation rather than a formal speech. So the context could possibly have been that Paul is standing in the marketplace just kind of talking with citizens. And this crippled man is here and he just simply overhears Paul. And the word produced faith in him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the text says that Paul looks intently at the man, sees that he had faith to be made well. I believe the interpretation there might be that the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to see or decipher spiritually what was in that man's heart. And then the Holy Spirit allowed Paul to heal him. Now in verse 10 it says, Paul did not speak quietly, right? He didn't come up to the guy and go, Okay, so here's the deal. I, th- I think you might be healed. So why don't you, don't freak out, just kind of wiggle your big toe. And if I see it, mo- no, he didn't do that. He was bold because he believed strongly in what he was saying. Because it was God accomplishing the healing. So that... Others could hear what the Lord had done and thus believe, right? Now, the effect was instant. Verse 10 says that man listened to Paul and he sprang up. That takes a lot of faith. Sprang up and walked, which is crazy. I honestly kind of doubt that any of us remember what it was like to learn to walk. Think of people who have been through, been injured in war or car accidents and how long it takes to relearn to walk. 
all the muscle movements, the, co- the control, the coordination that it takes just to be able to stand upright and balance, that happened in a moment for this guy. Can you imagine the joy in his heart? A life without walking and a moment of simple faith in Christ brought about by the Holy Spirit through Paul's preaching and this man is up and dancing. It's crazy. So this healing through Paul in Acts 14 is very similar to Peter's first healing back in Acts 3, verse 6 6 to 8. In fact, I've seen charts that kind of line up uh, the two accounts and the similarities are astounding until you remember it is the same spirit at work in each scenario, right? Now the Lystrans, they see this miracle and they interpret it through their own religious lens that is rooted in Greek and Roman mythology without the influence of Old Testament theological background. In verse 11 and 12, it says, They lifted up their voices, saying, in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And if they stopped right there, they might have been biblically accurate. But no, they move on. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? We see that Lystra has a temple to Zeus. Right? We mentioned that in verse 13. What's happening here is that there was this ancient legend that likely originated in the writings of Ovid. His work, Metamorphoses, contains this legend from the area where this, the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, purportedly disguised themselves as men and came to the hill country seeking hospitality. But the legend says that there was only one elderly couple, Philemon and his wife, Baucus, who welcomed them. And in return, the gods directed that couple to climb a mountain in view of a coming flood that destroys all the other inhospitable people. And then subsequently, this poor couple's little cottage was changed into a big temple with a golden roof and marble columns and all that. And the houses of all the other people were completely destroyed. Now, the Lystrans may have been thinking of this legend when they welcomed Paul and Barnabas, mistaking them for those gods, revisiting them again in incognito. And they said, well, we, we don't want that. We don't want that to happen again. So call the priest to Zeus. And that's what they do. They proceed to move toward making sacrifices to Zeus and Hermes, or rather, Barnabas and Paul. Uh, Barnabas might have been taken to be Zeus because he was perhaps larger in stature, a little older. Paul's, I think, maybe in his early 40s at this time. Paul's taken to be Hermes because Hermes was the god of, uh, the messenger of the gods or the god of speech, perhaps. And Paul's taken to him, like the text says, because he was talking more. However, since the people were speaking in their native Lycaonian language, that Paul and Barnabas did not understand, they were probably unaware of what was transpiring. That is, until they see this giant procession with a priest and an ox with a big wreath around its neck show up. And then they, of course, both, they tore their clothing 
at being the objects of false worship. Tearing your clothes uh, was kind of a reaction of horror or disagreement or rejection upon hearing blasphemy. Right? They did not want to be seen as stealing glory from the God they had come to preach about. Remember back in Acts 12 when Herod did not correct the crowds calling him God and he was struck dead? Didn't work out for him. So this scene has actually been depicted several times in art history, and I thought it might be kind of interesting to take a look at one or two of these. So this, uh, yeah, this first one is Paul and Barnabas in Lystra by Peter Lastman. You can see the wreath on the ox's neck and the priest there in his robes. Paul's probably the guy up front. You can see Paul and Barnabas there on the right-hand side. Paul's probably up front because he's talking. He's going, no, don't do this. And Barnabas is in back, tearing his clothes. Um, Now here's the second one. This is the sacrifice at Lystra from the year 1515 by Raphael, who I believe was the purple Ninja Turtle. You see the procession coming to Paul and Barnabas to worship them with the animals to sacrifice. This one actually has an axe raised over the, the neck of the ox, who is seemingly unaware and uh, Paul and Barnabas are tearing their clothing, and I think you can kind of see around their heads, there's, there are auras, I think, that perhaps signify the presence or the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon them. Uh, perhaps more culturally appropriate example of this for us might be this moment in Return of the Jedi, where the Ewoks have Luke Skywalker and Han Solo at, and their whole team at Spear Point, and the Ewoks suddenly notice C-3PO and freak out because they have their own local legend about a strange golden god that they mistake him for. And not unlike Paul and Barnabas, as he told Han Solo, even C-3PO's programming made him unable to impersonate a deity but for more details on that account, you can look this up on Wikipedia, which is totally a thing. I'm so happy to say. Now, <laughs> the question is, how do Paul and Barnabas move on to address this crowd who just tried to sacrifice animals to them as Greek gods? I mean, I, I think that pretty much illustrates that these people are not connecting dots back to the God of the Bible, right? So how do they approach this situation? And here's where I think we can begin kind of moving into fleshing out our main premise for today. Paul and Barnabas describe to us and the Gentiles a God who is living and who is good. Now if you're Digging into God's word on a regular basis, that probably doesn't sound like rocket surgery, okay? But you have to remember Paul's audience. They're not ready for rocket surgery. As believers today seek to follow Christ in our context, sometimes we need to know that it is best not to overthink things. I struggle with that a lot, okay? Sometimes for those who haven't had much exposure to the God of the Bible, it's enough to share that he is the living God and that he is good. 
So let's talk about the living God. So one of the things, the first things that Paul needed to try and dismantle is this pantheon of gods that these people of Lystra believed in. He needed to try and move them away from their polytheistic concept of many different gods for many different facets uh, and reasons of existence toward the monotheistic concept of the one true living God of the Bible. So if you look down at verse 15, Paul says to the people, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. He's identifying with these people of Lystra, establishing a common ground that Paul and Barnabas were just humans like them, not part of the pantheon of gods that they sought to worship. And Paul goes on, And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, the Lystrans believed that Zeus was the god of the sky, the kind of the king of the gods, and in control of nature and weather so he could provide rain. That's what they were looking to him for, was provision for their crops and their food. And Paul's pointing out the vain nature of seeking sustenance from a god like Zeus or Hermes, who are, first of all, not a thing. They did not exist. Secondly, they, the depictions of Zeus and other lowercase g gods, they were often really unloving, self-centered, man-made gods who reflect the image of man. We read in the Bible that God is made in the image of man. This is exactly the opposite, right? The Greek and Roman gods were made in the image of man. And as A.W. Tozer points out, no religion has ever risen above its conception of God. Meaning that if people believe their God is conniving, self-serving, tricky, nasty, deceitful, their religion is going to build itself around that concept. And they will try to be sneaky with their God and act the same way that their God acts. So if these Greek and Roman gods are designed off of the image of man, it is simply vanity to follow after a God like that because they're imperfect, they're modeled after our own sinful hearts. He is rather encouraging them that with the good news, they don't have to seek hope in a vain, empty idol any longer. The living God has provided salvation for them. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, this concept might sound kind of familiar to you because we have a name for it, and that name is repentance. Paul's calling them to repent, to stop looking for hope in idols of hopelessness because they will never find it there. Repentance is good news because all can turn from that hopelessness and find hope in the living God who, as Paul points out in verse 15, made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. He seems to be quoting either Exodus 20, verse 11, or maybe Psalm 146. Let's look, look at Psalm 146 a little bit, starting in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. That sounds like vain man-made gods, right? When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. 
Blessed is he, however, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the one true God of the Bible, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. It just keeps getting better. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Now, the living God is over creation. We see that there. And that points to how he is eternal, meaning he has no beginning. He has no end from everlasting to everlasting. We're just saying that, right? He did not only create all that there is, but he sustains it. He's constantly at work, keeping creation going. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. We've read this a few times this summer, I think. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is creator, he's sustainer, he is active. Verse 16 talks about God being active in past generations. We've seen the living God literally be active in this story by lifting up those who are bowed down, right? In the midst of the story, he heals this crippled man. He opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes of this man, and sets him free from a life of sin through belief in the Son. And that gift of freedom in Christ is available to all. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that Paul and Barnabas are enduring persecution all through Acts to deliver, to share. That's the message we share with you today. The offer is the same. If you turn from whatever it is that you're trusting in to make yourself good enough to enter heaven and turn rather to the living God who has provided the way for all to be saved through faith in his son Jesus Christ. God promises that you will be saved. Amen? Now maybe you've thought, I'm not really that bad. I mean, shoot, I'm a lot better than most of those people in the Bible stories. Those people are a mess. You know what? You're right. They are a mess. There's only ever been one who wasn't a mess. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's the point. Even David, a man after God's own heart, that's what Paul said in Acts 13. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a mess, and he needed the forgiveness of God. Now this, I think, is where this sermon in Acts 14 kind of mirrors Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, which says, For they themselves report concerning us this kind, the kind of reception we had among you and how you did two things. Number one, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And number two, wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, God Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now I think we can infer then that this is probably where Paul was headed in Acts 14, but we don't get to see him land the plane 
in focusing on Christ and the resurrection in Luke's writing. I like how Tony Marita points out that this is quite possibly due to one of two reasons. Number one, either Luke, like we mentioned earlier, just simply didn't include it. Or number two, Paul got cut off by the crowd. Note it says in verse 18, they were scarcely able to restrain the people. Right? So that could have happened. Either way, we see a lot of similarities in Paul's speech later in Acts 17, where he's speaking in Athens to another Gentile crowd, but that is a sermon to be continued later. And I'm not going to go into it because I don't want Mike rushing up here to stop me. (laughs) So, to summarize, the God of the Bible is a living God who created all, sustains all, and is sovereign over all, active in all. And not only that, he wants a living, breathing relationship with you. And to further establish that, Paul moves into our second point, which is God is good. Okay. Now this is where I think we can begin to talk about Paul's approach in relating to what is called the attributes of God. He begins laying these statements that are applicable to the people of Lystra, but ultimately can be rolled up into pointing to concepts of the living God, such as his mercy, his grace, his patience. And I'm going to roll all those up under the umbrella of the goodness of God. And to get an understanding of these attributes, I think a good place to start would be Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Anytime you're trying to define an infinite God with finite human language, Things are going to get difficult, and that's when you phone a friend like Wayne Grudem. So he says, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Subsequently, God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. God's patience is God's goodness in withholding punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. So God's mercy, his grace, his patience, all forms of his goodness. And in verse 16, Paul says, In past generations the living God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Basically, Paul's saying that the former generations, they did not have the complete revelation of the will of God. And they went about sinning in their own special sinful ways. And the living God allowed that. Meaning, he did not give swift and righteous judgment when they did sin against him. He allowed them to pursue the idols of their hearts, creating distance between him and them. They did deserve judgment, but God in his goodness, his mercy, his patience, he postponed it. And what we see in verse 16 is pointing to a kind of common or general mercy, which he provides to both believers and unbelievers. That reflects Psalm 145, verse 9. His his tender mercies are over all his works. Now, A.W. Pink says that while God's mercy is infinite, it's important to note that the mercies God bestows on unbelievers are solely of a temporal nature. That is to say, they are confined strictly to this present life. There will be no mercy extended to them beyond the grave. 
And that falls right in line with the God's message of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, if you do not place your faith in the son for your eternal salvation, this earth is as close to heaven as you will ever experience. Now God's saving mercy, which he has shown through the son, Jesus Christ, to believers, however, that is eternal The work of Christ carries on through because the sacrifice on the cross was a sacrificial atonement. That means Jesus deserved no sin penalty. He was innocent, yet he freely laid down his life to save mine, yours, anybody who would believe in him. And he has paid the penalty on our behalf. And God's judgment is satisfied through mercy that carries throughout eternity. So I am then covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer says this way better than I could. Okay? He says, Our sins have been punished. The wheel of retribution has turned. Judgment has been inflicted for our ungodliness, but on Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in our place. In this way, God is just, and the justifier of those who put faith in Jesus, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen? And this means that for those who believe in Christ, praise God, this earth is as close to hell as they will ever experience. This is the sovereign mercy of God. And I believe likely where Paul would have been going in this context. Because to simply play up the temporal mercy of God, that doesn't explain to the people of Lystra how to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. Right? They needed the explicit details of the gospel. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, he has this famous illustration about honey. He says, your mind can know that honey is sweet. You can read books about it. People can describe it to you. But if you haven't tasted its sweetness, you, don't really, you know it with your head, but you don't really know it with your whole being. You don't know it in your heart. And this, I think, is reflective of Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste for yourself is the implication. So Paul knows from the outset that the majority of these people in Lister, they, they have no basis of knowledge of the Old Testament. So he can't, he can't really go there. Rather, he goes to what they have experienced, what they have tasted, something that resonates in their heart, and that is creation. The natural world that they have all seen and experienced firsthand. If you look at verse 17 there, it says... Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is taking all the good things that they've experienced in creation, all the joy, all the beauty. He's unhitching it from Zeus and connecting it directly to the God of the Bible saying what you have been experiencing all this time is the mercy and goodness of the living God who has not demanded sacrifices of you, by the way, 
has not dealt with you in a malicious or a capricious manner, but has rather given you glimpses of his perfect patience, his amazing grace, and unending mercy. When you've not even paid attention to him, in fact, you've been running in the exact opposite direction, into the arms of a vain, lifeless God of your own creation, right? And he points to the rain, which is especially poignant, because this particular area, Lystra, is really arid, really dry. So rain is scarce, and rain would have been that much more of a blessing when it did come. So he's taking that emotional response, and he's hitching it to God of the Bible, so that he can put in their minds that it is God who is the source of their joy in their experience of creation, rain, seasons, food. People like food, right? Again, Paul keys in on the context of his audience so ridiculously well. He knows what's going to resonate with them and prick up their ears, and he hits them right where they live. How amazing is that? Now, Here's another angle I think I, I, I want to maybe hit to go a little bit deeper here, related to stories. So what would any great epic story be without conflict? Harry Potter with no Voldemort. Lord of the Rings with no Sauron. It's like Hobbits go for a walk. Die Hard without Hans Gruber. Come on. The depth of the good cannot truly be felt without the contrast of the bad. I think the same is applicable with the kindness and the severity of God. You can be told that God is good by thousands of people. You can read books about it. You can name it on a list of assumed facts. But the goodness of God, his kind mercy and saving grace to sinners that can never truly be appreciated until we grapple with our own sin. And we get a sense of the depth of our depravity. By our very nature, we excel in sinning, right? We nail it in sin, right? Even when we're doing good, most of the time we're doing it for the wrong sinful reasons, if we think about it, just to expose our own pride. But God, who is perfectly holy and whose perfect wrath and justice will also be maintained, cannot be around our sinful imperfection. So this is not a two steps forward, one step back kind of situation. It's not a balance out my good stuff with my bad, and so hopefully it's a little more good than bad, and I can skate through with a D minus. Like math. God's holy nature and righteous justice requires that we meet perfect sinlessness in order to be with him in heaven eternally. Even one sin in thought, not even a deed, but in a thought, in your heart, that means that your entire life work amounts to a stinking, smoldering pile of filth. Those are not my words. Those are essentially a paraphrase of the words of Jesus. Okay, Matthew 5, 22. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The Greek word there for hell is Gehenna. Now, in 
their book, The Explicit Gospel. Some of you in our, who've been through our Leadership 222 class, you might have read that. Hopefully you read that. In that book, The Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson point out that Gehenna was a reference to this ravine on the southern side of Jerusalem, where about a hundred years before the, the time of Jesus, there were these really crazy murders. And the Jews started to view that area as cursed. And they began treating it like a giant trash dump. When it would get too full, they just set the whole thing on fire. So Gehenna began to capture or conjure this really vivid image of a literal, stinking, smoldering place of destruction and neglect. That's what Jesus is linking our sins to deserving. And yet, God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. In the midst of our helpless state, God is grace. He is mercy. He is good. Can you taste his goodness? So where, where does that leave us in terms of our application? Well, first of all, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, I would ask, maybe you think back to where we were talking about the people of Iconium who were divided, right? I think Tony Marita's question is very applicable. Does the grace shown through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross bring you an inexpressible sense of joy and relief? Or does it incite you to hate people who are counting on the grace of God? Because you, you look at them and you're like, they're a mess. Really? You think they're better than I am? No. They're no better. They're just forgiven. So where do you land on the question of the resurrection? Do you think it's just this fake story that couldn't have really happened because those people were ancient simpletons and now we have science. We know so much better. I would just ask that you consider these questions and perhaps today is the day that you turn and trust the Savior who is good. And we're going to have some people over here uh, who are ready and willing to talk and pray with you. Please don't leave here today without speaking to someone. If you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart to believe today, don't leave without talking to someone. So how about if you have placed your faith in Christ? Do you see how you might be able to apply Paul's approach to those around you who don't believe? There are many people around us today who don't know what the Bible says. Now, it may be available to them in a totally different way, thousands of ways differently than the people of Lystra, right? But that's part of the fallout of living in the United States. This culture has so many distractions. And it is really difficult to compete when people think they have everything they need. And what they think they need is way shinier than the message of the gospel. But still, do not underestimate the power of the seed of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Right? 
cast the seeds, throw them out, and trust God to do the work of belief. Sometimes the best seeds are the simplest, just sharing that God is living and good. Now, if a theological approach gets out of hand, just remember it is incredibly difficult for someone to refute or argue with personal testimony. Share how the living God has been good to you about the path you were on living for your own glory when he changed you and saved you and now what it's like following him living for his glory. We're celebrating baptisms today. Hello? Right? What better opportunity to have a testimony than a baptism? Okay? You can share with people the goodness of God and how he saved you. And then you were driven to go public, like Mike preached last week, with that information. Now, okay, so as the band kind of heads up this way, I think we have, I have a great quote from John Stott. This is a fantastic way to end our time today. We need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the, God, of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are to find a point of contact with them. With secularized people, today this might be what constitutes authentic humanness, the universal quest for transcendence, the hunger for love and community, the search for freedom, or the longing for personal significance. Wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news, and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So Bob Lancaster is going to come up in a moment to, uh, to lead us through communion. We're going to celebrate that together. A little bit later, we'll be celebrating baptisms. That'll be fantastic. Um, I'm just going to pray for us right now. Lord, we thank you for this passage today, for the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas in living out this journey to bring you glory through the spread of the gospel. We thank you for sending your son to save us, for sending your spirit to guide Paul and Barnabas, to protect them and instill belief in people along the way. And we pray that you would help us to see that there are people all around us with myriad backgrounds, all of whom need the gospel. And so we pray that you would make us bold to share, sometimes simply, that you are the living God, that you are good. And help us to remember that our final goal should always be to share the beauty of Christ, to point to his sacrifice on the cross and the hope that we have in him as the culmination of your perfect mercy, grace, patience, and goodness shown to all humanity. Lord, help us to remain faithful to liberally sow seeds of the gospel such that the Holy Spirit may bring forth belief, glorifying you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.